Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. We're also joined by Lem, who might cause some mischief. This is so different from the last six episodes, where we were not joined by Lem, ever. <laughs> uh, it's everyone's second favorite podcasting cat. <laughs> Lem is a just regular host of the show. Yeah. We just we need to update the cover art. It says an export audio podcast with Autumn, Neve, and Lem. <laughs> the best part is I have another cat. I have Ollie. Ollie just never joins the podcast. <laughs> Lem takes after me and is very needy. Uh Nia, did you watch any movies this week? Um, I did not. I had a weird week. I did. Uh, I watched Manhunter, which is a fucking great movie. Um, if people are not familiar with Manhunter, it is a, a 1986 film uh, directed by Michael Mann that adapted Red Dragon, the first uh, like Hannibal Lecter novel. Um uh and it's fucking good (laughs) it's kind of a weird movie because it's before like it's from before that movie the it's from like before that was like a series like there was not a second novel out when that book came out anthony hopkins is not in this movie it's like before hannibal lecter is like a media property yeah but um uh, it kind of gives Manhunter the space to just be one of the best fucking movies ever made. <laughs> um, I would say it's the best. It's not that. It's not on that level, but it's really fucking good. It's just you. You give out the best movie ever made like it's candy, and now you're like, mm, not sure about this one. <laughs> this one is like very good. This one is a very fucking good movie. It's not. This movie is not as good as a, as Mulholland Drive. Okay. And therefore, it cannot be the best movie ever made. Um. Anyway. <laughs> um. It's just kind of a movie about like, and I'm not gonna give do, do plot stuff, but it's just kind of a movie about like. It's very, like, stylish. It's very, like, these, like, gaudy 80s, like, buildings, um, and, like, lit with just, like, neon bullshit, just, like, you know, where where one director might put, like, some blue curtains or, like, a blue light in the scene, um, like, Michael Mann, like shines a gigantic blue spotlight on everything happening in a scene you know like (laughs) um it's just a very very like stylish movie very cool and very much about like 
um, you know, it's just very straightforward, like, serial killer story, and because it's, like, 1986, you don't have to, like, there's no self-reflection, there's no criticism, there's no sort of, like, um, ah, actually, we know how messed up this is as a genre, it is just, like, showing you a lot of really dark things, and, like, exploiting the sort of, like, inherent allure of seeing a bunch of really dark things, and, um, it is, like, like, what am I trying to say here? Like, it is just very straightforwardly about how, like, you know, serial killers like Hannibal Lecter and, um, the Red Dragon guy, um, are a, like, threat to the good and, like, like, the nuclear white family, um, of affluent people is just, like, an objective good in the universe of Manhunter, and serial killers are bad, not because they kill people, but because they are a threat to this, like, affluent white family, um, as, like, a sort of societal construct. Yeah. And... The movie is, like, very uncritical of that in a way that you could only do in 1986. And it's just kind of funny and quaint in that way. Um, It's, like, just nakedly abhorrent in a way that I find, like, most true crime and, um, like, like, true crime serial killer stuff I find to be pretty abhorrent because all of it is secretly about how, you know, serial killers are only bad because they're a threat to the to the white family. Um like like all of this stuff is about it. Manhunter is just not trying to obfuscate that <laughs> in any way. Um it is just straightforwardly what the thing is about. So uh that doesn't make it good. That doesn't make it an excuse for it, but it is um refreshing, I guess. Yeah. Um this did also spur me on to, um, last year I watched, um, the first season of Hannibal, um, which is the 2010s, uh, show that is a, like, sort of a prequel, sort of an adaptation of those, of the Hannibal Lecter novels, um, it is, um, you know, people know that show, it was very popular, I think. Um, but I watched the first season last year. I rewatched the first season and I just started the second season today. That show's fucking great. I didn't put it on the, I didn't put it on the spreadsheet because, uh, one, there's not a stairwell and two, I'm really enjoying that show. And I do think like cinematically it is more interesting than a lot of television that I think gets produced. Like I think they're trying to do more stuff with, like, sights and sounds than a lot of shows do. But at the end of the day, everything sort of lit, like, looks lit by, like, weird fluorescence and LEDs that just kind of, like, wash a lot of, like, tone out of every image. And, um, you know, it's just a lot of shot-reverse-shot because, like, you know, we're making these shows pretty quick and you just need actors to act. And it felt weird sort of, like grading Hannibal against things like Lady Snowblood or Manhunter or, um, 
The Empire Strikes Back, you know? Um, also, I just didn't see any stairwells in that season, and so, you know, I guess I could give it an F, but I just didn't want to bother with it. Yeah. So. Um, it's not like Utana, where it is just so clear that the stairwell is great that, that I had to rate it. Um. Mm-hmm. Like, I think... I think I could put it on this list. I think, like, I do think Hannibal is a better-looking TV show than a lot of TV shows that get made. But it is still, like, you know, the sorts of, like, um, it's still a TV show. It's still, like, you know, kind of stretching a budget a little bit. Um, um. The, the the thing I thought that was most, like, aesthetically interesting about the show that I hadn't thought about because I don't watch a lot of, like, live-action TV generally is that every time I watch a movie now, I complain about how everything's shot on green screens. And what I didn't think about, how is it in TV, um, they still just shoot everything on sets because that's, you know, cheaper when you have to make, like... Um, 50 scenes that take place in the same room it is it is still cheaper to just build that room than it is to um uh like have to animate it in a green screen every fucking time (laughs) um that was the thing that was like most like sort of fun to me it was like ah yes this set we've seen so many times and they're like playing around with like you know um you know, oh, we see it in a different light now, and, you know, all that sort of stuff, so, yeah. yeah. That's Hannibal, that's Manhunter. Um, Hannibal is also about how um, serial killers are bad because they're a threat to sort of affluent families, and Hannibal does not know that it is about this. It has no idea that it's about this, uh, but... Um. <laughs> anyway... That's all I had for our, you know, other movies segment. Yeah. Um, I feel like I had more to say about Manhunter like two days ago, but I kind of like lost it all because I just like fell into the Hannibal hole. Hey, you fell into the Hannibal hole. Hannibal hole. That's a lot harder to say than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also you were sick. So. That's true. The other thing that was funny about the Hannibal hole was that you messaged me. I posted about, I was posted that I was going to start watching Hannibal and you're like, wow, you're really never going to watch those <laughs> rebuild movies. And I was like, it honestly hadn't even occurred to me. I would just like to be able to talk to it at some, talk about them at some point on this podcast, but I actually don't like, if you watch them, soon maybe but at a certain point i'd be like i need to watch those again <laughs> so that's the funniest possible outcome um yeah i still don't want to talk about them because you haven't seen them um <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry <laughs> All I'm saying is they should have treated me better. (laughs) (laughs) You mean they should have treated me, Sato, better? (laughs) 
People who've listened to Ghost Divers get the joke. <laughs> um, shall we talk about the movie? Yeah, we watched City of God. Um, I'm not going to say this is the best movie ever made, but it's a really fucking good movie. Yeah. It's a really fucking good movie. Um, so, for folks who don't know, City of God is a 2002 film. Um, yeah, it is... Uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I, I usually have the Wikipedia page open, and I kind of like use that to guide my thoughts as I'm starting to talk, but I didn't do that. Um, yeah, so 2002 movie from Brazil. Uh, I, w- I would call it a like, crime epic. Um, directed yeah. by um, Fernando Morales and Katia Lund. I hope, I hope I'm saying correctly. Um, and I yeah, I only remember seeing. Um, maybe I just missed it. I only remembered seeing Fernando Morales's name in the credits. Um, yeah, that was all that I saw in the credits. So, but. Like, whenever I see online or even in, like, you know, articles that I've looked up, they always also mention Katia Loon, so, um, I don't know if that's something... Katia Loon, uh, is only mentioned in this Wikipedia article once, whereas Merales is mentioned several times. I would love to know (laughs) what the sort of, uh, deal there is, but, uh... Yeah. Um, anyway. Huh. So also, so I clicked on the article for her. Um, mm-hmm. Says that uh, she was invited by Morales to co-direct Golden Gate Palace 2, a short, form, a short film uh, that won several awards in a film festival. And then uh, they continued their collaboration with the film City of God, which received international acclaim and was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Director. Loon was not nominated. Only Morales received recognition from the Academy. Um, so that doesn't, that doesn't like explain what's going on there, but the plot <laughs> thickens is what I'm saying. The, the plot thickens. Um <laughs> We just like live googling like <laughs> what's, yeah, no, what's the beef? I have to what's know what's the going... beef? Um Why was her name left off the Oscar nomination? Um <laughs> Okay. Um This might get dark. I don't know. Um this is an article from 2004, and the first sentence here is, um, uh, I'll read the first paragraph. In this article about Katia Lund, uh, we said that Harvey Weinstein, boss of uh, City of God's U.S. distributors Miramax, did not put her name up for the Oscar ballot paper. Miramax has asked us to make it clear that neither Miramax nor Harvey Weinstein can submit names for the Oscar ballots. They say that Miramax, like all companies, submits the film's credits to the Academy and enters the movie itself. Uh, I could maybe extrapolate some things from there, um, but that feels like we would go to a very dark place very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, so anyway. shall we go to another this dark movie. place? And do you want to summarize the movie? Yeah. Um. So it's a movie about chickens. <laughs> it is a movie about chickens. There's a chicken on the Wikipedia page. Yeah. It's the um, main visual on the poster. Um, so this is, yeah, this is a sort of crime epic in a, in a style that I think is very familiar, um, if you're, like, familiar with, like, U.S. crime epics, like The Godfather or Once Upon a Time in America or Goodfellas, it is, like, very much, I think, patterned after that, and it has a sort of, like, novelistic approach to, like, making things chapters that makes it hard to summarize so i'm gonna try and not get too i'm trying to i'm gonna gloss over some stuff i feel like because they really like spend a lot of time exploring a lot of nooks and crannies and i don't want to like you know spend the next 20 minutes telling you every little detail of the things that happen in this movie rocket is a kid um living in um uh favela uh in rio de janeiro called the city of god um rocket um like grows up around a lot of like gangsters and like kids on the wrong side of the law who like you know go around doing stick-ups and mugging people and selling drugs and like shooting people rocket never really has the stomach for that but he doesn't ever really want to be, like, working a nine-to-five either, and so he's kind of caught between, like, these, you know. He doesn't want to be, like, part of that, but he doesn't know what to be instead. Um, and we, he's sort of, like, we, he's telling us the story of the gangs in City of God, and then we sort of get, like, peeks into, like, his own life as framed by, like, oh, well, I knew that happened because I was at the party, you know, yeah. where that happened. But I wasn't really, like, the main character there. Or, like, the, you know? the beginning when it... I mean, it starts, like, at what is the end. But then there's the flashback to the 60s. And it's the tender trio that includes his brother as, like, one of the three gangsters. And so a lot of right. that is like, oh, you know, he knows this because it's his brother. Um, right. But it's not really about him. Yeah. Um so uh, the 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 sort of the story of the gangs um is that you know Rocket's brother and two of the older kids in town um are part of this tender trio that like is just kind of like having some fun, you know, they'll like hold people up but it's kind of all just a joke and they make a little money and it's not a big deal. Um one of the younger brother, they invite one of the younger brothers, little dice along on one of the like, um, you know, muggings where they get this idea. Little dice has this idea to like hold up a like hotel basically. And they like go in and like rob all these like rich people who are just laying around fucking yeah. basically. Um, little dice goes in and he's just kind of trigger happy and just starts like, murdering people left right and center um partially because he feels like he was excluded the three older boys go in without him and he like leave him outside and he's like feeling like 
shitty, and so he just starts shooting people. Yeah. This leads to the cops cracking down. Those three older boys all end up dead, except for the one who, I guess, goes and becomes a priest. Um, and Lil Dice, uh, who later, like, sort of rechristens himself to Little Zay, um, grows up and sort of, like, is, like, the most wanted, like, infamous stick-up kid in the whole, in the whole town, and then he realizes the real, him and his buddy Benny realize that the real money is in, um, drug dealing, and so they start getting into the drug dealing business, and and there's a whole lot of violence. Yeah, notably, their way of getting into the drug dealing business is, like, just killing everyone who's in the drug distribution business until no one will question them anymore um and kind of just like take over the market by by killing the people who are in control of the market um which brings about like a sort of like quote-unquote peace because now there's only one gang in town and it's little zay's gang you know Um, and he like even everything rule of if anyone other than him kills in the city then he has to like kill them to make a show of like you know i'm the only one right Right, and so this is a sort of, like, um, everyone's sort of fine with this in some ways, because now there's only one gang, and so, like, the violence is, like, less senseless than it had been. Um, And the gang's doing well, because playboys feel safer coming into the the favela to, you know... Yeah, because the thing is that by doing this, now all the, like, rich white people from Rio are, like well, I'll just go buy my drugs there, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so that's happening. The one thing is that there is, like, one other pretty minor gang that, like, Little Zay doesn't really like, but they're not super violent, and they kind of, like, stay out of... They're good at, like, staying out of his way, and his friend Benny kind of likes those guys. They're led by Carrot. Um, and so, like... Lil Zay never gets around really to like dealing with Carrot, but it's like fine. It's like fine. Yeah. Um, and one day Benny sort of realizes he's tired of all this violence. He's tired of all this like bullshit. He doesn't want to be a gangster anymore. He didn't, he didn't ever really have the disposition for it. He was just Zay's friend. Yeah. So he throws this huge party where like everybody in town is there. And um, I want to I want to quick interject because I think it's also important that at this point, Benny has started modeling himself um, after like a rich white guy who is like hanging out with the group. Um, And And in doing so has like like, having these aspirations of like white escape from from this area. Well, and also like, you know. There's, like, this rich white kid who's, like, hanging out with him. He sort of starts having this kid buy him his clothes, and he, like, dyes his hair blonde and all this. And when he does this, like, Rocket's, like, sort of almost girlfriend, like, dumps him and starts dating Benny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it's, like, cool because everybody still likes Benny. And, like, you know, Rocket's, like, upset, but, like, Benny's such a cool guy that he's not even really mad, you know? Yeah. Um, So... Um, Benny's having this huge party and Zay is feeling very upset, very like hurt because like his friend is getting out of this. We're going to talk about this in a minute. We'll circle back to this. Um, 
And at the party, this, like, the little brother of just some random guy that Zay had killed earlier in the movie, like, is, shows up and tries to shoot, um, tries to shoot Zay, but ends up shooting Benny. And, like, you know, Zay is just, like, torn up by this, really fucking hurt. And this leads to, like, a big escalation in the, like, in Zay's, like, violent erratic outburst he'd always been very like trigger happy he'd always been like shooting people but like now it's just like oh you looked at me funny but yeah you know benny was i think in some uh, ways like a like hey let's just chill like element yeah. and now is like my best friend who i have lots of affection is set up in the movie for um <laughs> is is out of the picture and that's like also further beyond just like not having this chill person in my life anymore um probably also to some degree this like i'm pissed off about what happened uh i think is, mm. is also happening here so yeah yeah explosion of violence explosion of violence um and one day he's like just rapes a random woman he sees um and like then the like her boyfriend like he's like i should have killed her boyfriend um and he like goes to do that and basically that guy fights back and that guy gets involved in in carrots gang and there's this sort of like increase in violence because now you know, not only is Zay just shooting people left, right, and center, but now there is someone retaliating for that. And this goes on for, like, I think the movie says, like, over a year of just, like, shooting back and forth, shooting back mm-hmm. and forth. Um, in this time, Rocket is, like, getting a job at the newspaper, um, and he's, like, you know, been taking photos on the side, and he really likes um, taking photos, but he doesn't really see a way for him to, like become a photographer he just really hopes that could happen someday but he doesn't have any real like plan for doing this um and he's basically like gradually yeah he gets a job delivering papers because he specifically because he wants to be like closer to the newspaper but he doesn't know how to like bring like i deliver the newspapers into being a job where he's like i make the newspaper because like there's no path for that you know so there starts to be more media attention on the city of God as, um, you know, this violence is escalating. And that media attention at first goes to um, to Ned and Carrot, basically. Um, and Zay gets jealous. So he's like, has, um, he has, um, rocket i couldn't remember his name for a second come over and take like a bunch of pictures of them and like show how cool they are and rocket just thought it was like a thing for fun he didn't realize that like zay wanted his picture in the paper so rocket like takes uh the picture to his friend who works at the paper and is like can you get this developed and there's like a mix-up those photos of zay end up in the paper um and like then the next day there is basically like the big final climactic shoot that shootout between like Zay and the cops and Ned and Carrot and um like the paper has like 
outfitted Rocket with, um, you know, a camera of his own, and he's there to, like, document, you know, the sort of climax of this big gang war. And he turns this into an internship um, at the newspaper, and, you know, we sort of end on that, and we end on, like, you know, a new gang of young kids who are like, wow, Zay was the coolest. We're going to start our own gang, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which um, I believe is is the runs, which we first see just being like, kind of just fucking brats, like trying to steal the joint from Rocket <laughs> earlier mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, a lot of weed and a lot of guns in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> also, as it goes on, more and more coke. Um. Yeah, for sure. Um. But yeah, that's it's it's sort of it is sort of a like novelistic movie like I said earlier. It has like chapters and like, you know, there's a chapter that really goes and like explores like Rocket's relationship with this girl and there's a chapter that kind of goes and explores like who Benny is and his relationship with that girl. And there's a chapter that's like, you know, here's Ned's backstory, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um I but yeah, that's sort of the broad strokes of everything. Yeah, I it definitely I think I forget if there was like a a novel that this was based on. I know that it has some source material. Um like it it's based on yeah, so it was um Paolo Lin's a 1997 novel which was semi-autobiographical. Um so like I think some of the the novelisticness probably I don't know if that's a word but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of that probably comes from like the source material. Um, and one of the other things that kind of struck me is it is doing these chapters, but also a lot of the visuals for this film I think is pulling from like more television forms rather than yeah um, like straight filmic forms. And so there's also certain episodic like. Oh, you could almost envision this as like episodes of a sh- like TV show as well, like the way that the chapters are broken up. Um, and I, like I think it it almost certainly would be a TV show if it was adapted today. Yeah, um, I think there was a TV show that came after this as well. That's like City of Men or something. Um, but yeah, like so that kind of struck me as something, and then I think also like just in addition to. TV generally, I think also, um, it is this like form of TV that I think, especially like the nineties I associate with, um, you know, this is coming out in like 2002. So it's like a little bit past like the prime nineties television style, but there's like, there's a certain MTV vibe to it. Not in like a, I'm not saying this in like a derisive way, although I think some critics have like, like one of the, the articles that I saw when I was doing my Google scholar search, um, is talking about the cosmetics of hunger, this like, um, film critic, Ivana Bente. So this, this essay is like someone else writing more about it, but, um, the film critic, criticized it for replacing the aesthetics of hunger with the cosmetics of hunger, um, of like making it even slicker and, uh, like more like an advertisement almost. Um, but I I think a lot of that, like that style for me, when I think of like 
where the cultural origins, at least in the United States, and I'm, I'm sure, like, a lot of international stuff is also influenced by, like, MTV as a thing that has, like, this, um, not just having music videos, but also taking, like, what is the style of music videos and applying it to editing other things. Um, like, I think mm-hmm. MTV is kind of a, a stand-in for that to some degree. Um, and I, I do feel like there are moments in this where it, like, really feels like even if it's not always set to music um they're doing a lot of like uh video effect like techniques that i would associate with a music video where it's like they will have superimposed images over each other or they will like cut up the screen um and have action going on in like different parts of the screen um right that are are just these things that like I think point towards a little bit more of like a, a video production um, as opposed to like film production ways of editing things. Not that you couldn't do like um, this kind of like, you know, have having in- images overlapping over each other in film, but it, it was far harder to do than like video production made it. So um, that, that was one thing that also stood out to me and just like the way that this, is, this film is put together the and and i think in some ways it's probably intentionally pulling on like that like quote-unquote slick like music video aesthetic as something that um it is this like thing that is capturing the the way that i think some of these people are thinking about like the gangster lifestyle right (laughs) um Hmm. This this is a like not fully complete take that I have, but um, yeah, I I think that comes through to some degree. Yeah, and I think like it comes through to the thing I was noticing a lot through this movie is like, um, and I would need to double check like when this became a popular practice in like filmmaking, but like, so so I could I could be wrong about like the exact like word I'm looking for here but there's like some really intense color grading here um yeah where like that I think is mostly used to denote like time and it, it it's sort of like like there's different color grades that like get applied to I think like different moments in time I think um I mean, this is the third time I've seen this film. Um, the the first time I saw it, I really struggled to like follow sometimes what was happening. Um, I think it moves at a very like breakneck pace, and I think it um, like you know, there's a lot of characters, um, and sometimes the the like because rocket is a like such a literal like point of view character there is sometimes like internality about the characters that is only conveyed through like visuals and sound and not dialogue um which can sometimes like make the movie just a little hard to follow when you're you know i was 15 or 16 when i first saw this movie um and i think the color grading to me, it does not always serve, like, a specific aesthetic purpose other than, like, 
ah, I know that these scenes are in the 60s because there's a really intense sepia tone to them. And I know that these movies, these scenes are in like the early parts of the 70s because like, you know, there's this sort of like bluish, greenish tint to so many things. I know this is like, you know, once the violence starts escalating because every fucking scene is dark blue, you know, um, like the color grading really just sort of like helps to ground you temporally in like what the mood of the film is in a really interesting way, in a way that I also associate with, with music videos and with MTV because, you know, you know, it's a sad song because everything is dark blue. (laughs) You know? Um, Um, Because you're, you're like, like, I think a lot of this too comes from this. um, And and it's really on display in this film in a way that like, I don't think something like a Marvel movie is using color grading in the same way, which is that like, everything is so fast paced that it is using these things to like very quickly get you up to speed on certain aspects. Um, which again, in the music video mm-hmm. could be like, Oh, this is like blue. So it's like letting you know that this is sad. Right. <laughs> like we are like, mm. we are pushing the color in this way to like tell you the emotional content that you're supposed to be getting faster. Um, and I, again, like I think in here, as you are saying, they are using it sometimes as this way to, uh, quickly ground you in like oh the scene has changed like time has passed to whatever you know um it, it's a lot of this because there is a certain amount of like jumping back and forth i think that happens in this film as well um it's mostly linear after the like original major flashback but there are definitely sections that um get mm. a little bit more convoluted like there's a part that's just like events happening in a apartment um, that's kind of this like own little standalone piece, uh, where it's yeah. all one shot, but, um, but yeah, I still think like some of that color grading just helps you like quickly grind, qu- uh, quickly ground you in a scene. Um, so that, yeah. cause also this is just, I think of any movie that we've watched so far, this movie has way more dialogue than like any other movie we've watched. Um, and, Oh my God, this movie is all yeah, dialogue. And people talk a lot in like <laughs> angels of the universe. Um, there's lots of monologues mm. in wings of desire, but yeah, there's just people talk and people talk very quickly. Um, as well in parts in this film. Um, there's a lot of like cross talk yeah. and everything. Um, yeah. so, um, it is, in some ways, it feels like, it feels like a movie that could only, like, be the way that it is in 2002. <laughs> yeah. I feel like. um, I feel like if this movie comes out, like, ten years later, it's, like, minimum three hours. And I feel like if this movie comes out... 12 years later it's a television series you know um and yeah it just feels very turn of the millennium because no one it wasn't like like this sort of like quick paced mtv editing that we're talking about was kind of in vogue in 2002. Romeo and Juliet was a really big movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and MTV was big. Like, it's not just Romeo and Juliet. It's that, like, you know, MTV was huge. 
And um, this, if I'm right about this being digital color grading, like, you know, um, it's 2002. No one really knows what they're doing with color grading. Why not just color grade every scene in this, like, different, very intense way every single time? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It. Th- this is something that I was thinking while we were watching this film, because we just watched In the Mood for Love, which is a movie set in the 60s that, like, as we talked about in last episode... Um, if you just showed me that you didn't tell me when it was made and you said, Oh, this was made in like the early seventies. I'd be like, Oh yeah, I believe you. That seems like it was shot in the early (laughs) seventies. Like it feels so, um, of that time that it's like trying to recreate to some degree. Um, Mm -hmm. this is dealing with the sixties and seventies. And yet if you showed it to me and asked me, when was this movie made? I would be, I would have been like, Oh, early two thousands for sure. <laughs> um, and it, a lot of it is I just think... like the way that they are employing these te- techniques, um, in ways that are, they're doing it well. Um, but it's also just very of that time. Um, I think when I was younger and I first saw this movie, um, cause it's, because I wasn't tuned into the music choices. Like, the music choices did not feel... They are specific. They are deeply 70s music choices. Yeah. But that's not something that I was paying attention to when I was a younger person. Like, like that's just not the, thing, the sorts of things I was clued into. I think I thought this movie took place in the 90s when I was a kid. I thought it was a 2002 movie about something that had happened a couple years <laughs> earlier, not, you know, two decades. Yeah. Because even the sort of, like, fashion of the movie, I think you could pass off as 90s throwbacky fashion a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, it's all, like, you know... The 70s were big you in know, the 90s. baggy... <laughs> baggy button-ups tank tops and um you know like 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 big jeans but like all of those things were popular in the 90s gold chains (laughs) things that were popular in the 90s yeah gold gold chains every everybody's iced up in this movie (laughs) um um but yeah like i it's such a fun it's such a fun thing I think because like this like crime epic movie like when I was younger like this was my shit this is like the stuff I was watching constantly you know yeah. um and like none of these movie none of those movies move like this movie does like this movie just fucking like goes so fast constantly things are always happening um and it's just like really fun really watchable really like in the same way that i watched like 13 episodes of hannibal like you just watch this movie and it like blazes by you and you're like yeah i love that movie you know and like um there's like ideas and like thoughts to chew on in this movie but, like, mostly to me, it is just a sort of, like, entertaining way to, like, see how this, like, all this bad shit plays out in some ways. Um, yeah. Um, 
this is the other one like the other thing i was thinking of as i was watching this just because it's fairly recent on my mind um and also because it's something that at some point we'll figure out how to do it for for stairwells it is a much longer movie than <laughs> we know how to handle currently with the way that we do these episodes but um a brighter summer day which is another like crime drama um this like crime epic but is just so like the pacing is just completely opposite um and a lot happens but it's four hours and so a mm. lot can happen and they can still just like have extremely long takes that's just here are people moving ab- about in a room here's just like someone sitting for a little bit <laughs> um here's just a shot of like someone in their little closet bed just laying there for a while um in a way that like just did not exist in this movie um and that that contrast was like i don't think either of them is, is superior or anything i just that contrast was really interesting the because um, I, I think both A Brighter Summer Day and um, City of God, they are, like, taking these, like, basically, especially Brighter Summer Day, it, they're just teens throughout all of it. Um, I feel like they get older um, in, in City of God, but these, like, you know... Let's take like the the these gangs that are not like the big um romanticized like mafia stuff but but give them that sort of treatment um let's treat like their struggles as also being them um <laughs> as as also being something that is like worthy of this kind of treatment um mm-hmm. in the way that like the mythologized, you know, Italian mobsters of the, you know, Prohibition era or whatever get treated. Um, right. I mean, like, it will, we'll probably get into this, like, with um, Joe's email a little bit in a minute, but, like, um, there is definitely a sort of, like, there's a way, I think, in the U.S., because this was a, like, crossover hit, you know, got nominated for four Oscars, um, this, that, and the third, um, like, there is a way that I think this movie gets sort of, like, exoticized and, um, sort of, like, um, what am I trying to say here? Um... There is a way that this movie gets. I'm trying to. Th- I'm trying to find the like the words that I'm looking for here. Like. This movie gets treated like ah yes, even like. Other places are capable of producing you know, the the crime epic in the same like other this is the godfather of another country you know um and not like a work unto itself it is like everything has to be framed in the sort of way of like um the godfather is this like holy like text goodfellas and casino and all these things of things are like you know, important film and, and 
city of God in the way that it gets accepted at like, you know, the sort of U.S. um, film circuit sort of gets treated as like, ah, yes, it's one of those from a different place, you know, and it's not how I want to think about this movie at all, because I think I think this movie is very engaged and aware of like the way that you know um i don't know how to make this point concise so i'm gonna like go around it in a you know a very long sort of fashion i guess um this is a movie wherein um like we talked about before little zay brings like quote-unquote peace because he's the only gang in town which makes white folks feel okay coming to um buy their drugs in the ghetto um which is like a loaded term but is the one that is used constantly in the translation of this film and so i just said it without really thinking about it um which is maybe on me um anyway you know like that's what the movie's about and the movie is about how like the cops don't mind little zay being the only gang in town because it means that they don't have to do their jobs anymore and they can make a lot of money um by not arresting him you know (laughs) um they would love to get paid more to do less um and like then they can focus more of their efforts on policing, you know, affluent white neighborhoods throughout Rio. Um, The first time we, the only times we really see the cops crack down on Zay are when, like, affluent white folks um, are hurt by his, (laughs) you know, um, what he does. And I also think that, like, one of the threads running through this movie... um, that I wish Rocket was a little more critical of sometimes, but I, you know, we, we could talk about that in just a second. But like one of the threads running through the movie is that like, um, no one cares what happens in the city of God until the newspapers and the TV stations start reporting on the violence. And then once that happens, then the cops care, you know, um, yeah. then the cops start cracking down on Zay all this to say, I think the movie is very much aware of how, you know, no one cares about, you know, violence and crime and, and the drug trade in poor poor neighborhoods, poor towns, poor cities. Um, no one cares about those things until they're sort of like either an inconvenience or glamorous and can be exploited for profit. Um and so like the way that you know this movie got treated by the oscars and the sort of like reputation of this film in the u.s um is ironic um and unsurprising (laughs) you know yeah um i guess that's all i had to say yeah i mean so one of the things that like for me like to, to sort of complete some of the thought i was having too around like this being a movie that I think is trying to gesture or is trying to like uh, approach what's happening here with this sort of like same crime epic that 
would have its like model in Hollywood um, is that I think a lot of this film is like something that I don't think we, we fully got into with the um, synopsis for the ending is that like part of the shootout involves um, little Zay didn't like pay the um, cops for the guns that he was getting. Like basically the, the gun dealer that he was working with and screwed over was like tied to the cops. <laughs> um, and sort of this thing that like has been continually suggested throughout the film, but gets most explicit there being that like the cops are also involved in supplying guns and, and drugs. Um, something that you notice very early on in this film is that like guns are extremely prevalent and yet they're remarking of like, Oh, there's a telephone pole coming up. We're finally going to get electricity. Um, and, you know, Rocket being, like, I saw a camera once and I want a camera. Um, and, like, these things are things that are rare and yet, like, guns are plentiful. And, and it's because of how these things are being supplied to them. Um, Everyone has a gun. And in one scene, like, Rocket gets a gun. And I thought, how did how did the fuck did you get that? You don't even like yeah. guns. And, it, like, he never tells a story. He's just like, oh, yeah, I had a gun. You know, everybody had a gun. Yeah. It was the 70s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so what happens, though, at the end is, you know, me loving any time that there's guns and cameras in a movie because I know that this is such a this is a thing that filmmakers, myself included, love to get up with their own ass about, <laughs> um, which is that we call both shooting like shooting is what we use to talk about both shooting a gun as well as like shooting a camera. Um, we use the same verb for those things and like there's a moment where there's the standoff, um, you know, there's little Zay's gang on one side, there's the police on the other, um, the, the gang of like Kara and, um, net what? Ned. Yeah. I'm like, knockout, <laughs> knockout Ned. Ned. I was like, what, what was his nickname part? Um, knockout Ned, uh, are also like coming to this, you know, was going to be a battle soon. Um, and Rocket's kind of caught in the middle, literally, um, as this, like, showdown's about to happen. And then turns, and when he pushes the button on the camera, um, one of the members of Knockout Ned's gang that's, like, just shown up shoots a member of Little Zay's gang, like, at that exact same moment. Um, thus, like, literalizing within the film the the clicking of the camera to the pulling of the trigger both acts of shooting mm -hmm. um and then how that ties into the like the newspaper like the police crack down when the newspaper talks about it as a problem too um and the newspaper isn't going to publish the photos showing that like the police were supplying weapons they're right. just gonna do the photo that's here's the dead little zay killed by the the runs right um they're mm -hmm. gonna do the exploitative shocking violence and so this, this is a thing that i um that i've noticed in this film and i i think it's something that like isn't fully resolved i think there's like a, a tension for me in it which is that on one hand i think this film is very aware that it is doing these like mtv editing um it is like doing this kind of sensational music video or advertisement style to depict like and to also then gesture at like, oh, the cool Hollywood gangster, 
right? Um, that has its roots in like Italian gangsters. And then I think also to some degree, this might be like pulling on black exploitation kind of stuff that also like dealt with some of these themes. Um, and so it's like putting itself within this like context of like the filmic depiction of, of gang violence. Um, it, it is using this like, uh, slick aesthetic to do it. It is, in many ways, like we will get into Joe's question, but it was funny because right before I tabbed over to read the question, because you you forwarded it to me, I was saying to you like, oh wait, I want to finish reading this abstract that I to this like essay that I pulled up because it's specifically about what Joe wrote in about, which was that this film drove tourism to go to favelas in Rio de Janeiro. Like the, these, um, you know, quote unquote slums or like these, these poorer areas, um, foreign visitors who saw the successful international film, you know, released came, it was from 2002, but like came out internationally, primarily in 2003, got nominated for awards. Oh, let's go to Rio de Janeiro and let's go look at these, like, you know, shanty towns, I think is how I've also seen them translated in, in some of these essays. Like, let's go to these favela, um, and take part in organized tours where in the same way that you can come to Chicago and you can like get in a, a bus that's shaped like a whiskey cask and drive around and they'll tell you where like Chicago gangsters got shot. Like there are organized tours to go around and like, oh, let's see, let's see the, like, what's the history of this place and that history being tied to, like, these violent things that happen in these poverty-stricken areas. Um, And so, that like, for me, it's like, I think this film is trying to engage with that when it has the camera tied to the gun, when it shows how the newspaper is going to print the the violence and is not going to print like the actual truth of what's behind all of this violence like it is a film i think that is aware of there's like a social structure that is perpetuating this violence that um that really is like not just oh it's these gangs fighting like it's not just the you know like I have no ideology understanding of gang violence. It is this like, no, these are constructed systems because it's actually beneficial for the people in power for like impoverished people to have easy access to drugs and guns so that they will like, you know, perpetuate the, the poverty. Um, And so it's a film that seems to be aware about, of that. And yet it is like still playing into it in all of these ways that, the result is people come to Rio de Janeiro and go on tours to see like where violence happened. And, um, that that's all shitty. <laughs> so can, can I, can I be on our bullshit for yeah. a minute? Um, I think this is a very much a movie about, um, sort of social constructs that, um, you know, perpetuate violence and, um, I definitely think that one of those social constructs is like, you know, everything we were just talking about, you know, policing and, um, you know, media exploitation and et cetera, et cetera, and money and economics. Uh, I think this movie is also very concerned with another social construct, and that's masculinity. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
there's like a there's like a thing that I I want to there's like a scene that we both were just like fucking activated for. <laughs> Before we get to that scene, I want to talk a little bit about the end of the movie and then work backward to this. Yeah. Because the the ending of the movie is so much of Rocket's character has been this sort of like I don't fit in, you know. I'm on the outside all the time. Um, I'm at the parties, but I'm not, you know, I'm not really anybody's friend. And the thing that happens at the end of the movie is that he gets this camera and he starts shooting people. And um, he loses her virginity. He loses his virginity to this woman at the newspaper's office. And, um, like sex and shooting um are is this sort of like twofold thing that like consummates his masculinity and like affirms ah he is a man now because he has learned how to do these two things um and that is a thing that we see constantly throughout this movie because people are are constantly anxious about, you know, am I doing good at shooting and having sex? Yeah. Um, and if they're not doing good at those things, um, then this is like an affront to their masculinity that must be like corrected. Um, so do we want to talk about the scene, <laughs> the scene that sort of had the, you know, the, you know, the sirens in alien, <laughs> that sound effect that's what was happening and i think both of our brains during this scene um they just said fag a bunch in the movie and then this scene happened (laughs) um do you do you so do you want to do it or uh i'll do it i'll do it um benny's party (laughs) zay shows up to benny's party pissed off and he's not talking much He's at his. He's at a huge party to celebrate his best friend in the entire world, and he's just kind of like not talkative. Looks a little pissed off. Kind of like looking around, not fitting in. He tries to like. He he looks across the room, and he sees Benny with this girl. I I want to interject he, with a key thing that happens slightly before the scene. Which is that okay, Benny tells do. little Zay. So, yeah, Benny tells little Zay, like, hey. Gets, like, six inches from his face. Like, gets <laughs> real close to him. Um, well, th- so there's a part where he's like, I want to get out of this life. It's, like, before the party happens. It's before his mm-hmm. farewell party. Um, and gives the advice to little Zay of you should get a girlfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. So And then walks yeah, out. Yeah, so I want to set all of that up before... <laughs> Zay's at the party. Zay looks over at Benny, sees Benny with a girl, looks even more distressed. He's kind of like wandering around. He sees a girl that he he thinks is hot. He tries to go hit on her. She rebuffs him. Now he's more pissed off. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like wandering around, and we've talked so much about like the pace that this movie moves at. Him getting rejected by this girl. Um, 
is like the only time in the whole movie that they just fucking linger with a shot. Like it is just 20, 30 seconds, which is really fucking long in this movie standards of him like looking kind of small in the frame. He's only from like the head up. So he's like, you know, it's sort of symbolically like, ah, he's in his head. He can't like, you know, he's not present here. He's just like thinking. Um, and just looking anxious. And it is like such an awkward thing. Cause this is the only time this movie has like slowed down for even 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, then he looks over, um, someone gives Benny a camera and Benny's like, Oh, I don't really like cameras, but rocket would love this. And he like calls rocket over. He gives rocket a, the camera. He gives rocket a hug. Zay looks over. He sees, um, Benny give rocket a hug. Now he's livid. He's going to, he's going to have a meltdown. I want to, I want to stress here. None of this is me reading anything into the movie. I'm just relating to you the events of the movie. <laughs> that he sees Benny hug another man, and he has never been so mad in his life. Yeah. He he gets his guys, and he, like, he looks around. He sees this girl he was hitting on dancing with another man, and he decides that he's going to, like, pull out his gun and, like, tell that other man to strip in front of the whole crowd and, like, you know, just like forces this man to strip, forces this man to um, uh, dance for him, and then um, still just does not feel any better. Um, goes over to like yell at Benny about something because he's upset with Benny about something now. Um, and that's when Benny is shot. And in this moment of Benny being shot, this is now the catalyst for the. Um, huge escalation of violence um in this movie and i'm not saying that zay is gay i'm not saying that like he is experiencing homosexual desire but i am saying that his in his masculine refusal to express whatever feeling he was having um he was having a feeling i don't Maybe it's that he just wanted to fuck Benny. <laughs> but he was having a feeling, and he didn't express it. And now the only thing he knows how to do um, to get that feeling off his chest is to shoot people <laughs> and to enact violence. And that's just that's just the thing that happens in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from a, an essay. This is Narratives of Violence, The White Imagination, and the Making of Black Masculinity in City of God. Um, this is a um, essay that was published um, at the uh, university in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and I'm just going to read it here because this is an essay that... You know, me me looking through it, I haven't read all of it, um, does not seem to be saying that uh, any of these men are homosexual, but I'm still just going to read this paragraph just to, like, further illustrate to the listener that this is not just us being on our, on our bullshit. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Zay's hypersexuality is explored during a party in the hood, where he gets turned down when he asks a woman to dance. The seemingly banal scene 
uh, becomes a key element. Hurt in his masculinity, Zay humiliates her girlfriend, Galinha, or her boyfriend, Galinha, a hardworking young man uh, who has resisted pressure to be part of the drug business in the hood by making him take off all of his clothes and dance in the middle of the stage. Later on, Zay's revenge is accomplished when he and his gang invade Galinha's house. Um, then, you know, so this is like going into the uh, stuff that happens. So supposedly, like, I don't even know because this moves so fast. I didn't make this connection, but that that is, um, I think Galenha is Ned. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the guy and the yeah. girl are Ned and the, the girlfriend that, you know, he like goes and enacts his, further enacts his masculinity. Um, right. Because then later in the movie, um, sort of the catalyst for Ned's escalation of violence is this sort of affront to his masculinity that, uh, his girlfriend was raped, you know? And he, he only is able to think about that in, I can't look at her because, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't need to like tell you the listener that like people have a lot of shitty ideas about women who are raped being like tainted in some way. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so anyway, th- this seems like a somewhat... So one of the things I was kind of skimming this this article because it seemed interesting. It might be one worth link- uh, linking. Again, I haven't read through all of it. Um, part of the argument that it seems to be making... Uh, so like in the conclusion, it's it's kind of arguing that this film is like to some degree reinstating um, the representation of black men in Brazilian popular culture. And that like the core dichotomy setup is this one between um little Zay as the the like quote unquote like bad you know black man um and then the uh rocket uh, as the like the good hardworking one who works out of it um and again i think it's more complex than and i haven't read through all of this essay to like fully have my feelings on it but i do think the the film is to some extent being more complex with that but also one of the things i think this article is trying to argue is that like to some degree that is um this is a movie that is like a product of its culture and so to some degree that stuff is in it um and like to what degree can you talk about this at all without having to like do some of it in the process. Um, so, but I don't know exactly how this, this, this paper lands on it, but I thought, I thought it was an interesting mm-hmm. thing. I also it sounds want to note that the person who wrote the book that it was based off of Paulo Linz, um, from the small biography that I found on Wikipedia, uh, does talk about how, um, I'm just going to read this sentence. His literacy and verbal skills enabled Linz to begin writing sambas and contributing to local culture, which enabled him to escape the cycle of gang violence in the favela and become a successful writer. Um, so he just himself might have certain thoughts about, like, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think all of that stuff is kind of tangled up in this movie in a way that... Um, Again, I don't have like a final judgment on it because I I think it's trying to engage with it, and yet to some degree I don't know how successfully 
it does. Um, yeah. I th- like, I think it's a very good movie that I think, like... I think it's a very good movie that I think sometimes is, like, aware of all these, like, problems. I think it's aware of, um, like, you know, cops and rich folks perpetuate violence in um, the city of God because it benefits them. And I think it's aware of, like, the media the media's role in that and the way that like media exploits that violence um to to perpetuate that system i think it's aware of the ways that um like masculinity plays into this and like the ways that like um you're only a man if you can do violence and you know like violence and sex are the things that make you a man and the ways in which violence and sex can intertwine. I think this movie is aware of all those things. And I think I wish it sometimes turned a more critical eye to them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm because like I say, the, the end of the movie is rocket participating in all of that, but because he gets out into a more affluent society because of it he's not critical of it yeah <laughs> you know? um and it, to, to some degree it's hard to be like like th- this is something that that connor and i talked about with evangelion which is like one to what degree like a, a movie is not going to fix racism it's just not it would no. be great if it could a movie's not going to fix racism. Lem keeps wanting to come in, and then I open the door, and then doesn't. Lem, come in. <laughs> okay. Still not coming in. Anyway. <laughs> can a Lem yeah. fix, or can a movie fix um, <laughs> Lem's desire to be in or out? No. Um, anyway. Yeah, like, one, a movie can't fix, like, all of these problems you know, can't fix mm-hmm. the problems of masculinity, can't fix racism. Um, also a thing that, that we talked about is like in trying to deal with these themes, you always have to grapple with them in such a way where like failing to actually do it properly is always a risk. Um, and so I also never want to like completely write off like, Oh, this didn't do it perfectly, so it shouldn't have done it at all, because I think people still need to try and grapple with these things, even if I'm not always satisfied with how they end. Um, mm-hmm. Like, Evangelion is a movie that I'm extremely critical of ha- how it lands on. I, it is a series that I think is really focused on sexism. That's, like, a key thing in the show. Um, I think it also fucks it up a lot. <laughs> um, I would still rather there be things that try and grapple with it. Um and right. so, like, th- this is something, too, that I think it's grappling with a lot of these themes. And I I do think that there are ways that it could be more critical, but I also don't want to, like, fully write off, like, well, it's bad for trying. <laughs> right? Um, it's also, like, in the sort of, like, alternate universe where this is a series or where this is a three-hour movie, I could absolutely see it. Like, it gets most of the way there, I feel like. Yeah. You know? And if you gave it 
you know, another hour to develop that, uh, you know, 10 episodes to develop that, it might get there, you know? Yeah. Like, it, my sort of criticism might be that, like, my criticism might be a little bit rooted in like it just ends with and then i got a job as a photographer and everything was fine a little bit yeah um even as the movie itself is complicating like there is just gonna be a new gang in the city of god you know um the movie is aware that the movie is aware that like rocket's fine Rocket's doing great now. <laughs> the The city of God is bad as ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, the movie knows that. Um, and I think the the movie is gesturing at the ways that Rocket is still involved in, again, through the, like, the conflating in that moment of the pushing the button on the camera with the pulling of the trigger on the gun. Um Mm-hmm. And, like, the conflation that exists in that we say shoot for both of these um, is gesturing to the way that, like, Rocket is escaping, quote-unquote, in, like, one sense, but I don't think is actually really escaped from, like, being some uh, being the, photograph- the photographer who takes... Photographer. Who takes the photographs of the violence. And then it goes into a newspaper where the police then crack down more on the violence. And, like, that that is not really escaping the cycles of violence that exist here. It's just moving to a place where you are more secure. <laughs> um, personally. And, like, people should not have to deal with violence. Um, but also, I think the film is aware of the fact that, like, Becoming the photographer of the gang violence is not actually like a, a true escaping from everything. Um, it's just moving. It's just shifting where you are within like that process. Um, but again, I it kind of it it ends on some of the stuff in this way where um, I think I agree with you. If there's like a little bit more space to, to breathe with some of that ending stuff, I think they could pull it out further and then do like in my mind, I can do the jump of yes. And then the filmmakers are also aware that they're using a camera to shoot um, this film Mm -hmm. and like in a way having the, the like main character of this become this journalist who's still tied up into the cycle of violence is criticizing themselves to some degree. Um, but I, I think there are, like, I wish that it went even further into that than I think it does. Um, but also my favorite movie is Sonatine, a movie that's extremely about how the camera and the gun are conflated. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I was... I was skimming through another article about Katia Lund because I was curious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do Joe's email? Yes, Joe's email. Um, Joe asks, um, I won't uh, I won't ask about the damn Lord of the Rings movie as it was implied in the last episode. I'm a delightful person who doesn't do things just to annoy people, but I will ask the following questions. One, well, I'm going to do yeah, two I was first because it kind of ties into the discussion. Two might be the better um, starting point here. Uh, 
weird question for me to be asking you two this question around City of God, but what do you think about how movies can play up uh, with the idea of authenticity or the direness of certain realities, especially foreign films, to appeal to outside audiences? I'm talking both about the movies themselves, but also criticism and advertising around them. I think about this a lot when I watch documentaries, but we also have uh, situations like the one of City of God, where the worldwide po- worldwide popularity of the movie contributed to a rise of exploita- an exploitative type of uh, tourism to the slums of Rio. Uh, excuse me. Um, we touched on that a lot. Um, I, we touched on that a lot. I, the only thing I would sort of like add to what Joe was saying and what we had already said was maybe that like... Um, we talked about this a lot in the in terms of like you know um films from outside of the US um like you know coming here and there's sort of like consideration for award season or even you know just box office success um i think it is a very real phenomenon even among um you know uh movies made by people from the u.s set in the u.s um i think a lot about um fruitvale station um um a really phenomenal movie um about a a black man who was uh killed by the police um and like you know like the last 24 hours of his life and the movie opens on um like the real video that like a real person in real life recorded with their phone of this murder, you know? Um, and if I recall correctly, Fruitvale station was up for a lot of Oscars, uh, rightfully so. Cause it is like a really like really good movie. Like it is just a good movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and I also like, you know, it is a good movie, and also there was an element of, like, the, when it was up for awards, of, like, white audiences patting themselves on the back for supporting the the, the Black Lives Matter mo- movie, yeah. <laughs> you know? I think that was a way that people thought about this. I think this is a way that people thought about 12 Years a Slave. Um, like... I think this is a, a way that people think about Moonrise. Like, it is, um, like, I think it's really hard for, for like, black directors to make a movie in the U.S. and not have this happen, you know? Yeah. Um, it happens now with, like, any horror movie, like, by or about black people just gets compared to get out now yeah you know (laughs) um you know and the the sort of like oh is this really authentic because it's just kind of ripping off get out as if black people never watched or made horror movies before get out came out like what (laughs) as if get out isn't drawing on a history of black horror movies (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah the the other like thing that ties into this is this is like such a small scale version of it. Um, at like 
so I don't want to like compare these as fully equivalent because what's happening with like, you know, city of God and this like exploitative terror, uh, <laughs> tourism, um, or the stuff with Fruitvale station, like all of that, that's like such a wider and, and also like stickier and thornier because of like how it ties into all the stuff around race and class and, um, you know, global south and all these sorts of things but the the chicago really came through when you said south there (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i have much of a chicago accent but okay you don't always but it really hit when you said (laughs) soul shut shut up um (laughs) anyway um the first time that I ever spoke at a conference was I went to the Queerness and Games conference and presented my game, All Tomorrow's Parties, which is uh, a game that um, you, Autumn, I believe, played when you, you were first coming out um, and considered significant. Oh, right. Um, it is a... I can't believe you made a a game based on a Velvet Underground song that I played when I first came out. <laughs> or titled after one. Yeah, I don't know. I... I, I it Based references three Velvet Underground songs. Um, yeah. So, but it is this, um, I will say semi-autobiographical. Um, there's a lot of autobiographical in it. But it, it is basically this story of me going through my memories and trying to do this process that I think a lot of trans people have where you are interrogating your own past and your own memories to like try to prove to yourself that it is like, yes, this proves that I'm actually trans. Um, When you're going through this process of coming out, you are like going through this process of trying to sort through those memories um, and reevaluate them and try to like prove, even if just to yourself that like, ah, this, this shows that like, I truly am trans. Um, And the point of the, the game, like the, the thing that, is said at the very end is that the game is specifically for people who are, are trans and struggling, like people who are questioning and are, are going through this process to say that like, like there are options that you make throughout the game and intentionally those options do not change the outcome of I'm trans. Um, in fact, the only thing that changes in the game is depending on what you say, I treat it as if you, the audience, like the person playing the game, whether or not you have actually figured out by now that this is a game about how I'm trans. And if you pick certain options, I reveal it to you more as like, here's this thing about me that you probably didn't figure out yet. Or I'm a little bit more like, yeah, you, you probably know I'm like trans. (laughs) This is what this is. Um, and that's really what changes. Um, but and so the point of it was like specifically all it is is my expectations of like the person playing it. Um, what are how are they viewing me? And the the real point of it is that like that whole process, like no matter how you decide to interpret the memories that I I'm talking about, um, the final outcome is still that I'm trans. And this is like kind of a pointless process of like going back through your your history and trying to like prove this to yourself. Um, but overall, it was this game that was, like, very specifically meant to be, like, people going through this process and this, like, thing of reassurance that I also wanted at that time of just, like, no, it's okay. Like, 
you don't actually have to prove this. Um, this is like this process that you're doing is like a, a process that like cis society expects of you because they're like hoping that you'll not question it. <laughs> um, after I released it, I had tons of cis people who were playing it. And um, I know for a fact that someone taught it in a class. Uh, it was a cis professor. It was a cis gay professor uh, teaching to a class of primarily cis straight students. Um I had people who were writing to me being like, oh, I played this game and I understand my trans kid better now or whatever. Um, And some of that stuff is like, I'm fine if cis people got stuff out of it. And yet I felt really, there was a part where I just wanted to to delete that game because it was never for cis people. Um, And what it became was this like, there's a lot of stuff that was going on at the time and it, I was tying into it um, in other like trans game spaces around these games being viewed as like empathy simulators. Um, you can like play this game and then truly God, understand. I hate empathy games. Yeah. It's like a, <laughs> um, and it was like this criticism, like a lot of criticism was happening within like trans game spaces around that. And that's what my talk was about. But I think this is a thing I'm using this as like, this is a very small scale game. Most people probably don't know my game, All Tomorrow's Parties, even people who know me. I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this podcast who know me and don't know that this is a game that I had um, that you can still find in play. Um, but I, I think there's always a certain amount of like, no matter what your intentions are as a creator, no matter what you're doing, um, like the the dominant systems are always going to try and make it part of their own thing rather than like actually letting it say the thing that you're trying to say. Um, and so this is one of the, the, this is like my other additional thought onto this, which is that like, when I see what happens to city of God, there's a, a certain degree to which I can say like, ah, uh, the way that this is constructed is perhaps like not being as obviously critical is playing into some of the slick aesthetics in these ways that where it becomes easy for people to just watch it as like, um, wow, cool gangsters. Let's go to Rio de Janeiro and like, you know, go to a favela and go on a tour about gangsters. Um, but I, I think so much more of that process is a process that is happening by these like hegemonic systems of sexism and racism and like nationalism and all of these things that, um, I don't necessarily think that the solution is people stop making artwork. And I'm saying that as someone who very nearly stopped making artwork because of like how people treated one of my games. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's like my final thought here is I want people to continue to make these, these stories about themselves. Yeah. There's still the system that is going to like co-opt it. And, um, you know, there's going to be the, the white Oscar, pat themselves on the back because they watched the black movie there's going to be the white people watch this movie that was about like this neighborhood in some part of harlem or something and then they're gonna go there to see it you know um and all that stuff sucks but it is like so much beyond the film itself in a way where um i want people to still continue to make those and there's just this like bigger dragon to fight um, that I don't know if we'll ever like defeat within our lifetimes, but mm. yeah. 
So question number one. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you want me to read this? Yeah, I just wanted to quickly correct myself on something. I called a movie Moonrise earlier. I meant Moonlight. That's all. Um, I like it. My mind started to like wander for a second. I was like, I think I called that the wrong thing, and I don't know what the right thing is. I haven't seen that movie. I should watch that movie. You said it, and I was like, that doesn't sound right, but... Um, it's that thing where I hear that and I can't think of what the correct is. And I'm just like, I'm not going to question it. <laughs> I don't. Um, what are your thoughts on the first episode of Twin Peaks? And how would you hypothetically talk about it if you had a Twin Peaks podcast? Um, which will never happen. Um, not going to fucking make a Twin Peaks podcast. Who would do that? That would be stupid. I hate you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um have you ever seen the european pilot i have not um i saw it once but it was a long time ago um, i feel like if we do a twin we... podcast we might do the european pilot at some point yeah i feel like i don't even know how you cover that um it, bonus episode i should bonus Patreon episode only just bonus episode. Your... i think that's probably the i think that's probably the move um, for people who are not familiar, the first episode of Twin Peaks is a double-length episode um, that was released maybe just on home video or maybe on broadcast um, in in Europe as a, like, essentially as a new David Lynch film called Twin Peaks, where, like, there is another, like, 20 minutes of material added to that film um, in Europe that solves the Laura Palmer mystery in the first, you know, in what ended up being the first episode. <laughs> um, they, um, like, they end it. There is an ending to Twin Peaks in the very first episode. <laughs> um, which is um, just a weird thing that exists out in the world. And I've heard Chris Remo and Jake Rodkin describe the European pilot, but I have not seen it myself. Um I don't know. I think the first episode of Twin Peaks is one of the most like remarkable pieces of filmmaking. Um, yeah, it it is ever basically a film unto itself, um, and it's fabulous. Yeah, um, it's just a like really extended, uh, you know, hour long look at a town in grief, um, mm-hmm. in a way that like you know that will still be part of the show but like it is so separate and unto itself as well from what a lot of the show becomes um there twin peaks and i think this would have to be such a big part of what we talk about if we did a twin peaks podcast especially with you having not seen the return twin peaks is a such a fragmentary like thing you can see on screen the weird way that that show gets made over the years. Like, you have to talk about it in these, like, weird and fragmented ways where, like, yes, the pilot is, um, like, the pilot. It is the first episode. Um, and also it is... Um, Um, like it is the first episode, but also they didn't know if they were going to make more of it. And as it is originally broadcast in the U S there's not an ending. 
but it feels like very like complete in some ways and there's like plot threads that lead into it but thematically it sort of like ties itself up um and then they make the show and then david lynch and robert frost leave the show and they make like a a different show walking around in twin peaks clothes for a while um and you know they um firewalk with me being such a different beast um like and then the return 25 years later like i think um one of the things that i love about lynch movies is like they're sort of like constantly reminding you that they are films that they're you know constructs that they're um these are people acting in front of a camera they're on stages that we built this is all manufactured no ibanda etc yeah um and i think that is so much of like like if you were going to talk about twin peaks i think you have to talk about the weird way that the pilot is this sort of like thing unto itself because they didn't know if they were going to make more you know um the like the production realities are on screen in some way. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, excited for whenever that never happens. <laughs> we could do it. In, we could do it next year for all I care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have. I would miss doing. Huh? Yeah, I don't have any other podcast plans for next year, so. Well, as long as you don't fucking start a fucking persona, um, like, playing persona every day for a Twitter account that no one follows, you should be fine. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) I refuse to follow that account out of concern for your well-being. Joe told me to do it, so I don't know what to tell you. Do we have any um, other emails or <laughs> <laughs> No, just the one. Um but thank you, yeah. Joe. If other people want to write in with emails for future movies, where would they write? You could write in to export audio podcast at gmail dot com. You could ask us about this movie. You could ask us about Itumama Tambien, our next movie. You could ask us about In the Mood for Love, our previous movie. You could ask us about Batman, 1999. Be a weird podcast to email us about that. We'd do it. We'd talk to you about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. We'd talk to you about movies we haven't watched. Yeah. You could write in about Bram Stoker's Dracula, because if you go to uh, exportodd.io slash, is it stairwell quality, I believe? Yeah. Um, you can see the, the movies that we're going to have coming up so you know the next what at this point it's like seven i think um in line Mm -hmm. and we'll just sit on that bram stoker's dracula until we get to it you know yeah but if you're like i literally just watched it go ahead and write in now um yeah also we need to rate the stairwell for city of god we do so 
there's a couple stairwells throughout the movie. There's like a lot of like running around and chasing people and like stairs feature into that figure into that. There is um there's like some stairs right outside of like the apartments that both Zay and Carrot live in. Um but I think the stairwell moment is um in the big shootout at the end. Um this kid gets shot um Ned goes to like see if he's okay. Um and we get a flashback. This kid had told Ned that he's joining Ned's gang to um get revenge for the uh, uh get revenge on the guy who murdered his brother. And we get a flashback and we found out Ned is the guy who murdered his brother. It wasn't anyone in Zay's gang. It wasn't Zay. It was Ned. He joined Ned's gang so that he would have the chance to shoot Ned in the back, and he does that. Anyway, as he's bleeding out, he's, like, laying on some stairs. Yeah. Um, And we get, like, you know, very, like, the stairs are just, like, part of the shot. There's not, like, it's not a stairwell scene, necessarily, but stairs do frame a dramatic scene, so. Yeah. Um, I want to give this a B, maybe, for that reason. Yeah, especially but because I, I think, like, there are these main stairs that I think are the main ones, but then also, I think we get some stairs when they're chasing the chicken at the very beginning of the film that comes back at the, the end, and then we also get, like, um, Rocket running up and down stairs trying to, like, catch up with where the police car went to take the photos, um... So, like, we have a bunch of stairs that are happening, sort of, both at the beginning and the end, around this, like, big shootout. And then again, like, this betrayal of Ned is, like, the the most, like, we are just having the camera point at some stairs for a while. Which, again, this film very rarely just points the camera at, like, anything for a prolonged period of time. So, um... Yeah, I feel like it was like a B. Yeah. Um. Man, you ever think about In the Mood for Love? God, that was a good movie. It's a good movie. Best movie ever made. <laughs> you ever think about Tokyo Drifter? Uh, yeah, that's the best movie ever made. <laughs> um, Rebels of the Neon God. <laughs> this is the best movie ever made. Next question. <laughs> Where can people find you? Uh, Online. Uh, you can find me on you can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. Um, you can find me getting interrupted on podcasts uh, by going to exportodd.io and who interrupts to you while you're talking? Our next... <laughs> <laughs> um, when you subscribe at that Patreon, you get access to this podcast a week early, um, a bunch of other podcasts a week early. Um, and if you give us $5 a month, you can listen to my wife and I talk about Godzilla movies, um, which has really been a struggle, but we're doing our damnedest to make it happen. We got five minutes into recording an episode recently, and my boss called and needed me to come to work immediately, so... yeah. It's been a struggle, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. 
Where do people find you? People can find me online at FoxBombNia on Twitter, or you can go to at your underscore Junez and follow that account. Um, that's spelled uh, J-U-N-E-S. Um, so that's where, that's where you can follow me, and I will next year live tweet one day at a time, Persona 5 Royal. Please don't do also, this. Also, you can follow me at Garfield Aloud, where every day I read Garfield into a camera, um, unless I don't feel like it, like today. <laughs> you should do that. You, I like Garfred Aloud. Keep doing Garfred Aloud. Don't, <laughs> don't do the Persona one. You don't even like those games. You will. You'll have to start a Twin Peaks podcast <laughs> with me to stop me. <laughs> um. <laughs> Don't threaten me with a good time. Um, I, um, over the weekend, um, I watched an interview with Cheryl Lee about, um, Firewalk with me and got scared, had to, like, stand up and, like, pace a little bit, um, because just, like, thinking about Firewalk with me got me scared, so, um, it's one of the it's gonna be really interesting. Anyway. No, no, no. It's your podcast. You talk. I just really want to know who keeps interrupting you on podcasts. So I'm going to go kick their ass. <laughs> Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. <laughs> And stopping recording.
some black capes back on the rack. Bella Lugos is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled, that velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugos is dead.